This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks. It is Mueller Day. The man has spoken, Mary Alice. It's been two years, more than two years, since he was appointed the special counsel. And other than Robert De Niro's impressions on Saturday Night Live, we haven't heard anything from the man himself. And he walked out. To me, it was a surreal moment. It was actually happening. Robert Mueller announcing that he would be leaving the Department of Justice and he is leaving quite a political football in the hands of congressional Democrats and 2020 years. We're going to get to all of that. We're also going to have a conversation with Senator Tom Cotton about his new book about the old guard at Arlington Cemetery. We'll also ask him about the news here and the news out of North Korea and Iran and a bunch of other topics. But Mary Alice, this is the day that everyone's been waiting for for a heck of a long time. But true to form, like everything else with the special counsel, he managed to do this in a way that surprised everyone. We were shocked over the last two years that Robert Mueller seemed to stay out of public view. It was hard to even track him down, hard to to get a picture of the guy. Uh, We were constantly surprised when he would put out statements and indictments from his team. And in the same way, I think that the entire sort of D.C. establishment and press corps was uh, was surprised that he chose today to give remarks on his day out of out of his formal office. And, and th- those remarks were curious on so many levels that he chose to give them and take no questions. He was punctual on the dot at, uh, at 11 a.m. Eastern time, which is rare in Washington. He was actually on time and he kept to the format. He read a statement and it was a carefully crafted statement that there's so much to get to. I want to play a chunk of it right now because there's a whole lot that, uh, that, that Bob Mueller says in this passage. Take a listen. As set forth in the report after that investigation, if we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. The introduction to the volume two of our report explains that decision. It explains that under long-standing department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Even if the charge is kept under seal and hidden from public view, that too is prohibited. The special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. So first, Mary Alice, let me admit that I was surprised that Bob Mueller's voice sounded like that. Uh, it's been so long since he said anything anything in public. But there, there's two key things. And Rick, I, I don't care about that. Oh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> there's two key things, though. Let's get to the substance. You, you're, you're, you're a substance person, so let's get to the substance. So there's two key things in this, and, and one of them uh, reiterates very almost word for word what's in the report itself, that if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, this is about obstruction of justice, we would have said so. So when the president keeps saying no obstruction, 
full exoneration. That's not the case. Bob Mueller is saying it as clearly as he can before cameras. And regardless of his voice, we work in an industry where we know that it is different when it's in front of the cameras. That might have been nearly word for word what was written in the report. But for him to stand up there and say it, it is now a soundbite that will be played over and over and surely give some Democrats ammunition. That's right. And and the next the next step of this, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while in office. Quote, charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. That's a little bit different than what we heard, especially initial, initially from Attorney General Barr, who in that initial letter that he put out a couple of months ago now said that the, the decision was made regardless of the policy that said that you can't indict a sitting president. Yeah. And then uh, the attorney general was asked about that when he was in the hot seat in front of the cameras on Congress. And it's actually hugely different in tone, uh, where I think there's going to be a lot of piecing together and looking back at exactly what Barr said when he was under oath. Uh, The tone of what he said was that it was not, of course, those regulations that was the guiding principle in in Mueller's um, final decisions. And it seemed to me today that Mueller was saying something very different in his tone. He was being very careful to say that those guidelines at the Department of Justice um, superseded everything and dictated where his team could even go. Right. So for him to come back and not make a recommendation on on charging the president, if that's based on the assumption that he couldn't charge the president, it's the, then he's gotten, gotten us really nowhere. And Barr took that one step further, of course, and said that there would be no charge that made the, the final word, there will be not, no indictment, no charging of the sitting president. Uh, but that, of course, raises the question of why he needed to say this in public at all. Because he's he, as he has said, um, he was speaking through indictments. He was speaking through the voluminous report, uh, suggesting that, that people read the report because that's what's in there. Yet he decided to do this on his last full day as an employee at the Department of Justice, his last day in public service. As he returns to his regular old private sector boring life, he made things quite a bit interesting for anyone who's listening. And, and really, depending on your audience, you heard different things from Bob Mueller. And it could have been because he's facing a number of calls from him to testify on Capitol Hill. He addressed that uh, very directly at the end of his comments. He said he wants this to be his testimony, of essence, that he does not want to sit and answer questions for members of Congress. He wants the report and the statement delivered to be the final say. Uh, no more questions, no more words from Robert Mueller. But he, he has put a whole bunch of questions in the laps of members of Congress. And this is how he did it. And this is a, a, a almost a, it's not even a full thought, but it, in, the, in the context of where it was in his remarks and what he said, well, take a listen to this. The Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. So Bob Mueller, all he's doing there is stating what the stated uh, process and the policy at the Department of Justice is, which is that the Constitution requires a process. Now, he didn't use the word. What do you think he's talking about there, Mary Alice? What's that process? This is a very implicit reference to impeachment. Um, He didn't use the word. I think he probably knew that that would be played over and over again. But um, that is the process outlined in the Constitution. So he is making a point of referencing the impeachment process in his remarks. So as we know, impeachment has been something that Democrats have been talking about practically since the day the president was inaugurated. I mean, this has been in the ether somewhere among some segment of progressives for more than two years. Um, from the, you know, Go back to the travel ban. Go, go back to the very beginning days of this administration. It's been, for most of that time, something that Democrats really don't want to talk about politically, and practically they know it's not going anywhere. Yet, and yet, today, 
as Mueller moves off the stage, we're hearing a whole lot of the I word. Uh, what's what's your sense, Mary Alice, as the twenty twenty years start to weigh in, and as, as congressional leaders face more pressure? I think it's clear that now congressional leaders are actively considering this in a way that they haven't before. And it's clear to me, too, that there is a big sea change with those 2020 candidates. Uh, I remember talking to campaigns in the last few months who had sort of near panic in their voice about the possibility of the House going through with an impeachment inquiry or impeachment proceedings. There was such um, a fear that that would be so politically divisive and so politically risky that it would be distracting from the issues, that it would be detrimental to the Democratic Party's push to to defeat the president in a re-election bid. But those same campaigns now sound almost resigned to the possibility. There's a lot of trust in Nancy Pelosi's ability to handle this and and, and make some politically savvy or, 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 or constitutionally important sound, decision here, yes. sound judgment here. Um, and also, I think it, and, uh, just uh, they've stiffened their spines in a way. There's there's more of a sense that the political risks um, might be there on both sides and that that there's not any other way to answer this question anymore. I'm I'm surprised by the number of campaigns that have come around to the topic. Yeah, and, and it's quickly becoming a mainstream position among the Democratic contenders. It initially was when Julian Castro and Elizabeth Warren came out in the wake of uh, in the wake of the the release of the Mueller report. It was a big deal. Now I think more candidates than not are are there, and I'm curious uh, as to who the last holdouts will be because this is where the Democratic electorate is, uh, and it's where the the congressional leadership. Um, seems to be moving very, very quickly. There's been this kind of middle ground position that that a few of a few of the major candidates, I think Joe Biden among them, continue to hold. Bernie Sanders as well. That says something along the lines of, you know, if we need to get there, we'll get there, but we're not there yet. But are we there? There now is the question because it's clear that the president is going to be obstructing and is in various ways and not making it easy for Congress to engage in oversight. And now it's clear from what Mueller has said and done publicly and closing the books on what he's saying publicly that he's handing it over. And he's handing it over to Congress. And more and more, there's there's not a clear other answer for them. I remember I was talking to Tim Ryan, a very moderate Democrat from Ohio, who's running for for who's a congressman who's running for president, one of the twenty three. And I said, you know, there's this battle and over impeachment in the House. What do you think? He started to give a pretty rote answer about how Mueller should testify, the investigations and hearings should go forward. I interrupted and said, but he's not. He does not want to testify. The White House says they're not going to comply with these subpoenas, in which case the follow-up answer was simply, you're right. Then we (laughs) might end up at a place where there's not another answer. And I think more and more Democrats are finding that they don't have some other answer to the follow-up question. Yeah, and for a long time, it's been an easy answer for the 2020ers and for congressional leaders to say, "Let's wait on Mueller. Let's wait on the, what the report is, and let's let's wait on what it actually says, not just what the Attorney General says about it, and let's wait on seeing an unredacted version of the report. Let's wait on hearing from the man himself." And then Mueller shocked everyone by today walking to a podium at the Department of Justice again, his last day, and delivering this statement. Uh, and and according to him. This is all he plans to say. Take a listen to this. There has been discussion about an appearance before Congress. Any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. It contains our findings and analysis and the reasons for the decisions we made. We chose those words carefully, and the work speaks for itself. And the report is my testimony. 
So Bob Mueller is a lawyer. He's now going to be in the private sector. He knows he's he, he's not he's not threatening to defy congressional subpoenas. Mm-hmm. He's not saying you better not bring me or I'll you know I'm gonna, I'm going to I'm going to make a big stink about it. He's basically saying I'm going to be boring. I'm not going to tell you anything you didn't know. And I read it as you know a bit of a challenge to Democrats to how how far are you going to take this? What do they get out of hearing from him if he's already saying I'm not going to say anything beyond what I've said? That he, he's trying to close the books on it. I feel like that's one kind of short term issue Democrats have to navigate now. Do you still? Pre- to hear from a man who says, I've said everything I'm going to say. Right. And if not, then what do you do next? Right. What's your next step? Uh, do, I mean, it, I, I, I'm referring back to that conversation I had with Tim Ryan where he went on to say there's still this challenge for Democrats to, in his words, kind of educate the American people. Democrats feel like if they're going to go down a shirt route, they need to be able to show a story, tell a story to the American people about why. Um, I think that in some ways, the press conference today that Robert Mueller had uh, – could be used in telling a story, but I think they'd like a lot more characters in front of the camera before they can do that. And it is interesting because there's Mueller didn't really say much new today, right? He didn't he didn't go out there and say, you know what, I really wanted to indict the guy after all, uh, and and you know shame on him for for using those terms like angry Democrats. None of that. He he still tried to play above that 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 partisan game. Yet the political ground is shifting, and I feel like the end of this chapter may shift it to a point of democratic no return where. They are put in the situation of having to pursue impeachment, whether they think it is smart politically or not, that they feel like they've given no choice. Nancy Pelosi saying a few weeks ago, the president essentially self-impeaching. Of course, that's not how it works, but that's where we're going. It seems to me that that's where the, the momentum is pushing. Two things stick out to me. One, uh, the Democratic chair of the Budget Committee, John Yarmouth, who's from Kentucky, has actually been a big supporter of the idea of impeachment for a while, kind of surprising from a middle-of-the-road yeah, guy from Kentucky. Sure. He has this line that he delivers where he says uh, he doesn't think that they should impeach because of politics or not impeach because of politics. You have some of these kind of purists who in the party who really believe there's a constitutional obligation here, that they've already reached that point. Uh, you've heard people use words like a constitutional crisis. And then the other thing I would say is that I think that the 2020 candidates are providing some cover to Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats. There was so much concern in the caucus that if they went down this road, they wouldn't be able to talk about health care or education or jobs. But I think they're finding that uh, candidates in Iowa and New Hampshire and elsewhere are getting their ideas on health care and education and jobs into the ether, into national headlines anyway. And that's providing some cover for them to go down these other routes. Yeah. And you mentioned the 2020 candidates. And Mary Alice, before we go to break and, and, and bring the interview with, with Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, I, I want to talk about debate season because it's basically upon us now. We're, we're now four weeks away from the first presidential debate spread Excited? over two nights. So I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait. Get me down to Miami already. Um, you know, we, we talk about how early this campaign is. And, you know, here we are just after Memorial Day and we still have a long road to go. But uh, to paraphrase the late great Yogi Berra, it's getting late early around here. And um, now only four weeks away, we, we're going to have a couple of multi-candidate forums. And now the news that ABC News will host the third presidential debate in September. And this one, it's going to be a lot harder for these candidates to make the debate stage. So to lay it out for people right now, there are 20 tickets to the first two debates, the first series of debates in June and July. 20 candidates, as long as anyone gets 1% or 65, 1% in polls or 65,000 donations, you get a ticket, you get a podium. For our debate- 
Unless well, unless, unless multiple of them do it, and there's tiebreakers that'll that'll rival NFL playoff scenarios if you need to get into it. But then comes September when when ABC's debate uh, is featured September 12th and 13th. Mark your calendars. You need you'll need two percent in the polls and 130 thousand donors, and that that's going to be tough for a whole lot of campaigns that are that are struggling to get traction. Right, there were a lot of campaigns that were already pushing their supporters to help them meet these this first sort of uh, benchmarks, and now they're basically going to double those benchmarks in just a few months. Um, so I think it is going to be hard for some of them. I think that um, sort of some tough love from the Democratic Party that we're seeing, uh, a realization that at some point the fields will have to narrow, that voters will need to start making some decisions, um, that 23 candidates, it was just really hard to get to know 23 people well. But when you think about it in the grand scheme of um, of, of getting closer to Iowa and voting actually taking place, having to prove that you can get 2% in the polls Maybe that doesn't sound that high. Uh, you can't even win a single delegate in Iowa if you don't win 15 percent of sort of in local um, in local caucus races there. And so I think that that two uh, percent compared to the 15 percent thresholds that that then show up when you actually start counting delegates um, means that you'd have to show you're making some progress in your campaign. And 130,000 donors is a lot, but when you look at the the fundraising a couple of Democrats are able to bring in and and President Trump without even doing nearly as much active fundraising as is possible. I mean, if you're going to need to get tens of millions of Americans to buy into your ideas, your vision, the idea of getting 130,000 people to give a dollar or two doesn't sound like it's an unfair burden. Uh, There are going to be complaints about it, no doubt. Uh, I also think it's going to change the immediate dynamics, Mary Alice, because so much of the the share of the polling pie right now is being eaten up by really two front-running candidates in the polls in Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. And if the two of them together take half the electorate, uh, you got to do something to get it. You're not going to do it by being Mr. Nice Guy in all likelihood or or just hoping to get lucky or, or get a big viral moment like a Mayor Pete. You're going to need to start engaging with the front runners, the people that actually are attracting a good portion of support in the polls. And that's what we'll be looking for on the first few debate stages. If people start kind of punching up, if they start engaging in a real way, um, maybe People start nitpicking Joe Biden's record or or start bringing pretty blunt attacks. I think everyone will be on the lookout for that because, like you said, they're going to have to have some moments there on the debate stage to get their name out, to, to make a point and to be memorable. All right. We're going to take a quick break, Mary Alice. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, about his new book. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics, and we're pleased to be joined here on the podcast by Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, the author of a brand new book, a fascinating read called Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. Senator Cotton, welcome. Thank you, Rick, for having me on, and thanks for your interest in Sacred Duty. Uh, it's our pleasure. Uh, and I want to start with the, the news that uh, that broke today. We finally have heard from Robert Mueller himself after two years of silence. And there was a lot to unpack in his in his relatively brief remarks. He says it'll be the, the last word that he has. But among those words, Senator, he said that uh, if he was able to conclude that the president did not commit a crime, he would have said so. Uh, he also says that the Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. Uh, does that leave an obligation for Congress to pick up the ball where Bob Mueller has left it? Rick, uh, Special Counsel Mueller said exactly what I would have expected him to do, which is I've made a 450-page statement on the record. I would encourage everyone to read that report. And the report says, most importantly and most clearly, that there was no collusion between the Trump campaign 
um, and Russian intelligence services. He did say clearly, which is important, that Russian intelligence services did interfere with our political processes, and we need to take that seriously and take actions to stop it in the future. Um, but I, I don't see how one can conclude there was obstruction of something into an investigation that didn't happen. Um, that's what I take away from the Mueller report, and Mr. Mueller didn't say anything today, as he said in his own words, that went beyond the context of that report. Is it your hope that this is the final word from, from Robert Mueller? Well, he said it was going to be the final word. He's resigning and returning to private life, and he intimated that if he was asked to testify in Congress, he would do nothing more than just read his report. Again, it's 450 pages long. They spent two years working on it. It's available for free on the Internet. I don't know what else would be added by hearing more from Bob Mueller personally. And if this does close the chapter, we know the president has complained quite publicly about the way he was treated by what he called the angry Democrats on the Mueller team, the witch hunt uh, that, that was a recurring theme. Uh, turn that around. We know the president's view on that. But do you think that Robert Mueller was treated fairly himself by the president through this process? You know, obviously, the president had frustrations about the Mueller investigation and how long it lasted and how far afield it went in its investigations. But, you know, if the president had wanted to remove Bob Mueller, he could have. He didn't. He let the investigation run its course. And that's what Mr. Mueller said both today and, and in the report. Um, that's a separate question now than what happened in 2016, which Attorney General Barr has said he's investigating. He's appointed a longtime respected U.S. attorney in Connecticut, John Durham, to help get to the bottom of that. Senator Mary Alice here, I want to switch gears uh, overseas. We saw the president this week while in Japan disagree with his own national security advisor over the actions of North Korea. Do you think that the North Koreans' launch of short-range missiles last month was in violation of the recent U.N. resolution on the issue? Well, it's certainly not a productive step, Mary Alice, if Kim Jong-un is serious about denuclearizing. It's not nearly as provocative as what was happening, though, in 2017 and 2018 in terms of long-range intercontinental ballistic missile launches or, or nuclear tests. Um, I think it's open to debate whether or not it's in violation of that UN resolution, but what ultimately matters is whether Kim Jong-un is serious about denuclearizing. He wasn't at the Hanoi summit. Um, he asked for everything in return for giving very little, and the president properly walked away from that summit and hasn't taken any further steps. I think that's the right, right course of action right now. Except he did come to his defense. You know, We saw the president really uh, break with tradition, to say the least, and surprise a lot of folks when he applauded and repeated Kim Jong-un's very personal and kind of silly attacks against the former vice president, Joe Biden. Uh, and again, this was while, while the president was abroad in Japan. Do you see any problem with that kind of behavior or any consequences of it? I'll leave the president's campaign and his opponents to himself. Um, I'll say that, you know, Barack Obama had a habit of attacking Republicans when he was overseas, and I don't recall the media getting uh, bent out of shape about that. What I'm more focused on is what really matters to Arkansans, and I suspect to most Americans, is whether or not Kim Jong-un is ultimately serious about denuclearizing um, his nation. Um, and until that happens, uh, I think the approach the president has adopted on the merits is the correct approach to keep the maximum pressure on and to enforce all the sanctions we have against North Korea while keeping open the prospect of Kim Jong-un of returning to the negotiations if he is serious about denuclearizing. You know, your your book is largely about paying tribute um, to to those who pay tribute to uh, to our country. And, and, and you know, 
the we want to talk more about the book in a little bit, but I want to sort of stay on the topic of of war and um, potential sacrifice of young men and women in our military, especially as the conversation about possible military action is back in the headlines again in the last few weeks. And a lot of skepticism on Capitol Hill about the intelligence uh, that Iran was sort of stepping up its own military activity. Did you uh, have any concerns about that intelligence? And what do you make about the possibility of the U.S. taking military action in a whole new way in the Middle East? So, Mary Alice, let me say first, the reason why we've deployed additional troops and resources like an aircraft carrier and bomber, B-52 bombers and Patriot missile defense systems to the Middle East is not to take action against Iran. It's to deter Iran from taking action against us and, if necessary, to retaliate if provoked. As to the intelligence, though, about a month ago, it became very clear to anyone with access to all of the compartmented intelligence, as I have as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, that Iran was preparing to lash out potentially against United States personnel or citizens or facilities or our allies in the regions. That's what prompted the deployment of those additional resources and those personnel. I know that some people in Congress who don't have access to all that intelligence uh, question it, but I would point out that last week after uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Joe Dunford and Secretary of Defense Pat Shanahan and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo came to brief the entire Senate, uh, there were, to my knowledge, no senators coming out of that briefing questioning its validity. I mean, some of it is not intelligence. It's just facts the whole world can see. Four tankers were blown up in a port in the United Arab Emirates. A pipeline was attacked in Saudi Arabia. These are not intelligence guesses. These are things that really happened. That's not to say that all senators agree with the course of action the president's pursued with Iran, of course, over the last year. But there's not really any question anymore about the validity of the intelligence. And I would say that Iran has been waging a low-level war against the United States for 40 years. And sometimes that war has turned pretty hot. Over 500 Americans were killed in Iraq in the last decade because of Iranian-made bombs. Some of those Americans, unfortunately, rest in Arlington National Cemetery and were laid to rest by the old guard. Um, Iran, for 40 years, has been probing the limits of what they can get away with, with supplying uh, weapons and money to terrorist groups to attack American troops in places like Lebanon or to attack our allies like Israel or Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates or killing those American soldiers in Iraq. We shouldn't have let them get away with it for so long. We're not going to let them get away with it anymore. That's the message that's been delivered loud and clear. You referenced the old guard, and of course, that's the subject of your book. And you served as a as part of that unit, this uh, the ceremonial unit at Arlington, in between tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. I know you've gone back and talked to so many of the the, the folks who have been involved in that. I came away with a, with really a new appreciation of uh, of the importance of of the ceremony. I was struck by one detail that I wasn't aware of that that those those cer- cemetery or the, the cemetery services, the funerals for for service members, um, they continued even during the 1968 riots, even on 9-11 itself, when members of this unit were actually deployed to the Pentagon. How important is that continuity of the ceremony to you? So it it is a no-fail, zero-defect mission, as I write in Sacred Duty, Rick. If there is a funeral scheduled in Arlington National Cemetery, that funeral is going to happen. If the cemetery is shut down to public uh, visitors because of a snowstorm, for instance, Families still show up, and the old guard will still be at that gravesite to perform a funeral. And as you say, uh, during the riots in 1968, when the old guard had deployed just blocks away from the White House to keep the peace, funerals continued. Or most notably on 9-11, uh, 
imagine being in the cemetery, being a family member, being a soldier performing a funeral at 9.37 a.m. when American Airlines Flight 77 slammed into the Pentagon and the sound that must have made and the image of that smoke cloud rising up above the Pentagon. Yet those funerals continued to their conclusion and the 10 a.m. funeral started and the 11 a.m. funeral started and all those other funerals started despite all the sirens and all the chaos just a couple hundred yards away at the Pentagon. And it happened last January or last December as well, Rick. Uh, the entire world was focused in early December on the state funeral for President George H.W. Bush, rightly and understandably so. Yet the old guard, as committed as it was to that funeral in the Capitol and in Texas, still left a, fun- a company of soldiers at Arlington to perform funerals that had been scheduled for months. And several families told those young soldiers, we're so grateful that you were here to perform the funeral for our loved one. We thought it would be canceled when we learned last last weekend that President Bush had died. But as one old guard soldier said, it doesn't matter whether it's the president of the United States or a humble private from the Korean War. Uh, This is a no-fail mission, and we will always be there to honor our fallen, as I write in Sacred Duty. I love that idea that that there's no difference. Um, you'd want to pay the same level of respect and honor. But, Senator, what did you learn? You know, you were already such an expert in this space. But but what did you what did any any stories that you remember that, that you learned or you were surprised to learn in researching for this book? You know, I, I learned so much about what the Old Guard does because it's such a large and diverse organization. I primarily perform funerals, but, you know, the, the military's premier drill team. They have, you know, world-class musicians with PhDs from in music from Juilliard and Berkeley, uh, marching in the Fife and Drum Corps. Obviously, they have the famous caisson platoon uh, that is so popular around the capital region that pulls the caissons for funerals, but also has open houses for kids throughout the year for uh, who don't often get to see horses in the capital region. You know, from a historical matter, I learned so much. One thing that is truly amazing to me is just that this land seems almost destined by some secret design of providence to become our national cemetery. It wasn't just the connection to Robert E. Lee through his wife in the Civil War when he fled after declining uh, command of the Union Army and the Union Army occupied Arlington, which was their family plantation. But his father-in-law, his wife's father, had been the adopted grandson of George Washington. And uh, they bought that land specifically so uh, he could be closer to George and Martha down at Mount Vernon. And in fact, Arlington's first name when he moved into it in 1802 was Mount Washington in honor of George Washington. And for much of the first half of the 19th century, it was known as Washington's Treasury because he had so much Washington memorabilia and relics and heirlooms. And he just opened it up to the public in that big mansion up on the hill that you see as you cross Memorial Bridge. Um, It was really the first public memorial for the father of our country. Um, It truly is sacred ground for our nation. And and the book, of course, Sacred Duty. Senator Tom Cotton, United States Senator from the great state of Arkansas. We appreciate you dialing in to Powerhouse Politics. Again, congratulations on the book. I came away with a new appreciation for an aspect of Washington that I think a lot of tourists know, and there's a, a new history behind it in this book, Sacred Duty, A Soldier's Tour at Arlington National Cemetery. Senator, thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you both. I appreciate it. And Mary Alice, I think it's appropriate to, to take this pause, Memorial Day week, to mm. remember the, the service and sacrifice. And I think this was an interesting book by a, by a senator that I think a lot of people think has national ambitions. He actually wrote this book, researched this book on his own. He did the interviews on his own. He didn't have a ghostwriter. It was a, a project that he was quite passionate about, that he, he lived on his own. And it's, it's a fascinating slice of history. You can feel his passion. It comes across in his language, um, not only his dedication to this unit and the work that's done there at Arlington, but, but he's a history buff that clearly gets really excited um, 
um, getting to share his love of history with, with others. And even on this day that is dominated by Robert Mueller and the fallout from that, it's nice to, to be able to take that, that pause. Totally. Uh, that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, we thank our entire team, Trevor Hastings behind the controls, Angie Yak, Avery Miller. For Mary Alice Parks, I'm Rick Klein. We'll catch you next time.